invite you to open your copy of uh, God's Word to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we began to study this psalm last Sunday morning. Uh, this is called a Psalm of the Cross. Uh, unlike, uh, or perhaps unlike any other uh, passage of God's Word, this really details what Christ experienced on the cross as he bore our sins. Uh, last Lord's Day, uh, we uh, looked at the first five chapters and saw the agony of Christ on the cross. This past Friday night, we looked at the uh, large middle section, verses uh, uh, 6 through 21, and talked about the sufferings of Christ on the cross, the mental torment and physical anguish that he endured. And now this morning, we want to uh, come to the final portion of this psalm and see the triumph of Christ through the cross. So let's read these verses that you see on the screen behind me, verses 21 uh, through 31, as we begin this morning. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Word of God says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise and the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posper posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is God's word. May he bless what we've just read and Let's just pause and ask for his help as we look into these uh, last words of Christ from the cross. Savior, we do now uh, pray for your help that you'd quicken us with the power of your good spirit who indwells us. Uh, Lord, give us understanding into your last words on the cross as we uh, study this portion this morning. Strengthen us with your grace, Christ Jesus. We do pray in your name. Amen. The Pit and the Pendulum. It's a short story written by Edgar Allan Poe. Perhaps you read it in a high school English class. Uh, it tells the story of a prisoner of the Spanish Inquisition uh, subjected to several forms of torture by the Spanish. The, the prisoner at last was uh, confined to a cell where his cell walls were slowly shrinking, pressing him into the center of his cell, uh, further and further closer to a deep, dark pit in the middle of his cell. This, the Spanish hoped, was where he would plunge to his death. 
the prisoner uh, describes it. Poe describes the prisoner's words here. He says, I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me resistlessly onward. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. I felt that I tottered on the brink. I averted my eyes. Suddenly, the prisoner says, there was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating of, as of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell, feigning into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hand of its enemies. That's what I call a dramatic turn of events. And that's very, the very thing we see here right in verse 21 of Psalm 22. Uh, we see this dramatic turn in the confidence of Christ. Look with me at verse 21 to begin with. Look at his despair. Let's back up a few verses and begin reading at verse 19 and listen to the despair of Christ. We saw this Friday night, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Christ is near death at this point. The end of his suffering is close. These are some of his very final thoughts from the cross. He's, he's been on the cross now for, for almost six hours. The last three of those hours in darkness, both literal darkness as darkness fell on the land and also spiritual darkness as he must endure the, the absence of his father's presence. He said in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is suffering in, in literal, but primarily spiritual darkness. But, but, but then comes his deliverance, just as we read a moment ago. Uh, look secondly at, at his deliverance as, as verse 21 continues. Look, uh, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What's happened to change the tone so suddenly, so dramatically, uh, right in the middle of verse 1? Unlike our prisoner in Poe's story, it's not that Christ was rescued from the cross. It's not the that the Father interrupted his execution uh, to save him from death. For that could never be, could it? Christ's payment for our sin on the cross had been the Father's determined purpose from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit had settled on this plan of redemption before time began. The Apostle Peter describes this in his sermon on, on, in Acts chapter 2, this, uh, this eternal plan of redemption. Listen to, uh, to uh, Peter's words. Then this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Note that that this is uh, this crucifixion, this execution by the Romans is taking place according to the definite plan of the Father. Peter describes it further in uh, his first letter. Listen to these words. Knowing that you were uh, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? He was foreknown. It would help if I advanced the slide. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ is the eternal Son of God. Christ was eternal, just as God the Father, just as God the Spirit. Christ has always existed. So what could this mean, foreknown before the foundation of the world? It means that Jesus was foreknown or chosen before the foundation of the world to be that pure and spotless lamb that would take away the sin of the world. No, no, the confidence of Christ, this dramatic change of tone in verse 21, is not that the Father would rescue him from death, but that he would deliver him through death by raising him from the dead. The phrase you see there in verse 21 in the middle, you have rescued me, is more literally, you have answered me. The Father has heard Christ's plea for deliverance and would answer him by raising him from the dead. That Jesus knew this is, is obvious from the next verse. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. In these last moments before his death, Jesus was assured by the Father that he would rise from the dead. Listen to this comment. Pastor James Montgomery Voice uh, mentions this as well. In the context of the crucifixion, Jesus has not yet died. But before his death, Jesus was already assured that his Father had heard him, that his atonement was accepted, and that untold generations would be saved and would become his brothers and sisters because of what he had suffered. So in verse 21, we see Jesus move from despair to, to deliverance. This is the confidence of Christ, the, the confidence that his Father would raise him from the dead. There's another feature of this triumph of Christ through the cross. From the confidence of Christ, we move on to the proclamation of Christ. In the final moments before he died, Jesus saw that he would summon people to the soul-satisfying greatness of God and eternal life through him. Christ's proclamation we see here uh, would extend to three groups of people. First, Jesus would proclaim the greatness of God to Israel. Look at verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Uh, the book of Hebrews quotes this verse 
and identifies the speaker of this verse as Jesus Christ. This is, this is Christ's confidence that after he had risen from the dead, he will proclaim the greatness of God and announce his triumph over sin and death. The next verse describes the people he would make this announcement too. It's Israel. Look in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. He referred to my brothers in verse 22. That could refer to all, the, all believers. But here in verse 23, this narrows it down to indicate that Jesus would first proclaim the news of his death and resurrection to the, to the nation of Israel. This was Jesus' uh, mode of operating in the New Testament. Let me point out to you his, his pattern in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is sending out his men, these 12. Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul had the same operating procedure, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you recall in Paul's travels that he would begin by preaching in the synagogues until he was thrown out. And then he went to the Gentile population of the city. This is who the proclamation will go to, the people of Israel. But, but as, as we go on, verse 24 describes the content of Christ's proclamation. Look in your Bible, it says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he, that is the Father, has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. This is a, a, a very important verse in our in our psalm recall that in verse one the father had forsaken christ my god my god why have you forsaken me the father had deserted christ as he became our sin bearer on the cross but this verse 24 reveals that the father had not forsaken him on a permanent basis this reveals that the father has hidden his face only temporarily and this reveals that after Christ had atoned for sin on the cross, his communion, his fellowship with the Father was restored. This reveals that after Christ made payment for sin, the Father heard his cries, would answer his pleas by raising him from the dead. This is what Christ would proclaim God the Father had heard his cry, raised him from the dead after his atonement for sin. So this is the, the people who Christ would proclaim the gospel to. The, first, the people of Israel. And the content that the Father had raised him from the dead. But then we go on in verse 25 and we see the result of his proclamation next. Uh, listen to these verses describe what happens as, an, as the result, the outcome. Christ, again, is the speaker. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What is, what is this talking about? Verse 26 in particular, the, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Well, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses encouraged those who had sought the Lord for an answer to prayer that when he answered, to hold a feast in the temple grounds, in the temple precincts. And this feast they would, they would offer to the afflicted, to the needy who are also there in the temple worshiping. And the one whose prayer was answered would declare what God had done for them and, and invite those needy uh, people not only to feast with them, but also to proclaim God's praise and join in their thanksgiving. So as, as David writes this, this kind of meal in the temple is probably what he had in mind. But as we've seen so many times before in this psalm, this is fulfilled in a way that David could never have possibly imagined. What do I mean? It means that this proclamation of the Lord Jesus would result not merely in a thanksgiving feast at the temple. Christ called people to a greater feast to eat and to find satisfaction in him. In John 6, Jesus announces this better feast. Listen to what Christ says there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then a few verses later, Jesus adds this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This, that is me, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this of this bread, pointing to himself, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the result that Israel would eat, so to speak, and live forever. Hmm. You know, I wonder if you've experienced verse 26. You know, John Piper is good to point out these words of satisfaction and desire in so many of his books, but could verse 26 describe you? Very convicting verse, isn't it? The afflicted or the needy, the meek, shall eat and be satisfied. So the question is this morning, what satisfies you? you do you see the goal? is to be satisfied with Christ. 
eat and be satisfied with Him. This is the the goal of Christ's proclamation. This is the end of the gospel. To, of course, come to Christ for, for forgiveness and cleansing from sin, but to be satisfied with Him. This same proclamation would extend beyond Israel as if radiating out in concentric circles. Not only is this made to Israel, the second group of people we see uh, this is made to is the nations. Uh, We see this in verse 27. Look at the expanding circle. May the ends of the earth, uh, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This, uh, this proclamation of Christ, his atonement for sin, his resurrection from the dead would turn people from all nations into worshipers. Uh, he uses the word shall remember, that is, shall call to mind, shall consider, shall consider his atonement, shall consider his resurrection, and turn to the Lord, that is, turn from whatever else they're leaning on, and turn to rely on this atonement and resurrection. Doing this, they'll become worshipers, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This happens, verse 28 tells us, according to God's sovereign purpose, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It, it has always been God's purpose, always been his design, uh, that salvation would come to the world through Israel. We see this uh, clearly in Genesis chapter 12, in God's covenant to Abraham, through you shall all nations of the world be blessed. And then further, we see that this proclamation is made without distinction and without discrimination to all. Look at verse 29 with me. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And so from the wealthy to the impoverished, this declaration of of Christ's death and resurrection will be made to all without distinction. And then from the nations of the world to the ends of the earth, we go into a different uh, dimension now, not uh, spatial, but time. Christ would also proclaim this to future generations. Uh, Look in verse 30 where you see this. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. So this triumph of Christ through the cross and the proclamation of this triumph would radiate outward and through time to include future generations like you and me. 
And this is what Jesus describes in Acts 1.8. How the gospel would radiate outward, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Christ rejoiced on the cross to know that this would occur that his, the proclamation of his atonement and death would radiate through the world and to generations yet unborn. This he knew before he died. This is the proclamation of Christ. His soul-satisfying death and resurrection uh, is proclaimed to Israel, the nation's and future generations. This is the second feature of his triumph. There's one more in our passage I want to point out to you. We've seen the confidence of Christ. We've seen the proclamation of Christ. And finally, we come to the accomplishment of Christ. At the end of verse 31, Christ announces that he has accomplished Redemption, it is finished. Look at verse 31 again. As I read this, pay attention especially to the very last phrase of the verse. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. What is the significance of this last phrase? It's really quite important. Uh, one Bible scholar says this, he says, the psalm which began with the cry of uh, dereliction, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that cry ends with the word, he has wrought it, or he has done it. An announcement not far removed from our Lord's great cry, it is finished. This man is referring to Jesus' final cry from the cross in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There are several Bible scholars uh, besides this one who have understood Jesus' cry, It is finished, uh, in John 19. They've understood that it's an adaption of this last phrase from Psalm 22. Uh, for example, there's a, a Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says the, the last verse of this psalm contains the words, he has done it. Or as Jesus seems to have understood the sentence in his quotation of these words from the cross, it is finished. In, in, in Psalm 22 here, we're reading what the future generations uh, have said. Or will say, he has done it. He has accomplished it. He has finished it. And in John 19.30, Christ seems to be taking their words and adapting them and making them his own. I have done it. I have accomplished it. I have finished it. What then was it that he finished? What was it that he accomplished on the cross? What did he complete? In these words, it is finished. Jesus announces that he has accomplished redemption. 
Redemption means to free someone from bondage. It, it involves the paying of a ransom, a price that makes redemption possible. Just as Israel was redeemed from Egypt, Redemption always means the payment of a price to secure someone's release. And so with these final words, it is finished. Jesus is proclaiming, I have paid the price in full. I've paid for the sins of all whoever had or whoever will trust in me for salvation. He had paid for the sins of all that the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. <coughs> he had paid for the sins of all God's chosen elect. It's paid. He has done it. It is finished. Uh, in uh, the, the Greek phrase underlining these underlined words in John 19 is the phrase tetelestai. And that verb, you've perhaps heard a sermon on that verb alone. The verb means to fulfill, to accomplish. But, but the verb tense Jesus uses gives it this sense. It has been fulfilled. It has been paid. And, and the verb tense goes further though. It means it has been fulfilled for all time. It has been paid for all time. They found the same word on, on a bill of sale from the New Testament era, and across this bill of sale was written this word, tetelestai, paid in full. Christ has done it. He has finished it. He's accomplished redemption once and for all. He has paid for the sins of all those that belong to him, including you if you've trusted in him as your Savior and Lord. A gentleman named A.J. Gordon was the pastor of a church in Boston. On his way to the church one day, he met a young boy in front of the sanctuary carrying a rusty cage in which several birds, rather pathetic-looking birds, fluttered nervously. And so Gordon asked the young man, Son, where did you get those birds? The young man replied, I trapped them out in the field. Well, what are you going to do with them? Oh, I'm going to play with them, and then I guess I'll just feed them to an old cat we have at home. Gordon offered to buy them. And the little boy exclaimed, I don't want these birds. They're just little old wild birds. They can't sing very well. And the pastor replied, that's all right. I'll give you $2 for the cage and the birds. All right, it's a deal, but you're, it's not a good buy for you. The exchange was made, and the boy went away whistling with his... Uh, Newfound $2, Gordon walked around to the back of the church property, opened the door of the small wire coop, and let the struggling, pathetic little birds soar into the blue. The next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit and used it to illustrate his sermon about Christ coming to seek and to save the lost, paying for them with his own precious blood redemption. 
That boy told me birds were not songsters, the pastor said to his congregation. But when I released them, they winged their way heavenward. It seemed to me they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. There is an utterly crucial question. And that is, has he redeemed you? How do I know if he's redeemed me? Well, it goes back to what we read just a little earlier. It's more than just you having, you know, walked down the aisle at one point, like at camp, summer camp, or saying the sinner's prayer at the end of a sermon, or even walking an aisle. You know you've been redeemed if, like it said earlier, you've eaten and been satisfied in Christ. Because it's, it's not just enough to mumble the words of a prayer. What the New Testament talks about, what the Bible talks about, is a complete change of heart. And that the, the junk out there Forgive me for using this. It's like Chinese food. You're hungry after 30 minutes. But you know you're redeemed if you can eat and be satisfied with Christ. Is that you? It means it'll go beyond this morning. Hey, you're here. Great. Big deal. Everybody comes to this church on Easter Sunday. Tomorrow morning, will you be satisfied with Christ? How about Tuesday? And dare I even bring up next Sunday? Where you assemble with God's people because there you have your dinner, spiritually speaking, and you eat and are satisfied. And if you can say, I can eat and be satisfied in Christ, that's a good indication. You are redeemed. But if there's no hunger pangs, if there's no thirst for the one who went through this torment, if there's no desire for this one who laid down his life, so that you could spring free and fly. If there's no hunger pangs, then, then friend, I, I want to be cautious and, and encourage you to find out why. So again, the, the question is, are, are you redeemed? Has he set you free? Have 
Can you eat and be satisfied? And maybe a conversation needs to take place to find out whether you are redeemed. This is his great accomplishment. Paid in full. It is done. It is finished. He has done it. And with these final words, both Psalm 22 and Jesus' life comes to an end. It's at this point where he breathes his last. But not before he proclaims that he has accomplished it. It's finished. So, we began last week in verses 1-5 through five, and we saw the agony of Christ on the cross. The agony of His spiritual separation from the Father. And then Friday night we looked at the sufferings of Christ. The mental torment, the physical anguish He endured on the cross in our place as our sin bearer. But here in this last portion we see the triumph of Christ through the cross. And we've seen three features of this triumph this morning. We've seen the confidence that Christ had. The Father uh, had heard and would raise Him. Uh, the proclamation that Christ knew his, his death and His resurrection would be proclaimed throughout the world to Israel, the nations and generations in the future. And lastly, this accomplishment. It is finished. He's paid it in full for all those who trust in Him. This is the triumph of Jesus through the cross. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, again for the gift of Your Son. We thank you, Christ Jesus, for laying down your life in our place. We thank you that you endured by the power of God's Spirit. And thank you, Father, uh, for giving Jesus to redeem us from sin. Thank you, Savior, that you paid the price and that our redemption was accomplished at the cross. Father, may anyone here struggling to know whether they're redeemed or not, please draw them in the mighty power of your Spirit uh, so that they can eat and be satisfied with you, Lord Jesus. We ask all this in your great and precious name. Amen.